So I was born and raised in Brooklyn, right? Uh, at this time, I had a couple of friends of mine that were also from Brooklyn who I had grown up with. I've known them since we was in high school. So I, even prior to high school. So I knew them about 10 years. At that time, they were involved in drug selling. So, and this was in the 80s when, you know, the crack epidemic was in New York. So everybody was basically involved in, in drug selling one way or another. Mm-hmm. And the day before, I was working at this time. I had, to be honest with you, I had been involved with them, but mm-hmm. I had left that alone. And I was working at the Queens County Registers Department. And the day before I had got arrested, I went to them and we had a conversation. And me and one of them had got into an argument. His brother was there. It wasn't uh, uh, nothing violent. It was just an argument. But we were long-time friends, so we argued all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. That's just the way we were. The next day, I went to work. And while I was at work, the secretary called me and told me that they wanted me in the boss's office. I went in the boss's office, um, the female that, that ran the spot. And when I went in there, it was detectives in there. They asked me my name, and they arrested me. Right there on the spot. Right there. So I didn't know, I had no real knowledge of what I was being charged with, mm-hmm. right? But I did know that I had lent my car to the guy I was with last night mm-hmm. because he said, let me hold your car. I said, I'm gonna leave it here because I don't, I don't need it. So I was hoping that he, he didn't get caught with drugs in my car. That, that was the only thing that kept going through my mind. Like, wow, he must've got caught or something happened with my car. I went to the precinct ready to answer whatever questions. Like, cause I know I was in Queens the night before. I knew where I was. I was, I had witnesses. So I had nothing really, I wasn't worried about anything. Right. I just figured whatever it was, it may have been my car, but it had nothing to do with me. It's, a, it's a misunderstanding. Right. What ended up happening is they asked me questions about where I was, who I was with. I gave them all the information. And throughout, I still wasn't told what I was there for. It wasn't until close to the end that they started telling me that the guys, two guys that I had been um, with the night before were both murdered. What? Yes. So I was linked to them because I was with them the night before. Right. Right. These were your, these were your people? Yeah, these were my people. And my car was on the scene where they were murdered. Uh. Right. So I became like, uh, I would say a prime suspect or somebody of interest because you talked to them last night, they had your car and they both got murdered. Right. Still, I thought, okay, it looks kind of crazy, but I know where I was. I gave them information. They called the people. People verified I was in Queens. These people had got murdered in, in, in Brooklyn. But before you knew it, I got arrested and charged with their murder because the detective, the the initial detectives who arrested me and everything, they was semi-satisfied with my my story once they checked and verified my alibis. But then another detective came in, Detective Louis Scarcella, Mm -hmm. and he came in and started just being belligerent toward me while I was in the the, um, detective's room and just saying, "I'm, I'm not going for that. I know you did it. I know who you are. I know you was involved with them selling drugs and this and that. And, you know, just created a whole story in his head and was trying to force me to say it. And when I told mm-hmm. him, I don't even want to talk to you. I don't know who you is. I don't want to talk to you. Leave me alone. He left out of the room, went and told them that I confessed. Oh, wow. What? Something that I didn't, not only did I, I didn't even know he went and told him that. I just mm-hmm. know he left the room. But what he did do was tell him that I confessed and I was charged and arrested based on his- That day? T- yeah, that same day. I didn't know until two days later when I was standing in front of the judge that he had told him I confessed because that's when they came and said, well, we have a confession from you. I said, a confession? Are you crazy? Like, mm-hmm. I never confessed to anything. I told you I was in Queens. I wasn't even in Brooklyn when it happened. And they said, oh no, you told that to this officer. But this officer said you told him that you did commit the crime. 
Did you have any contact with with him prior to? Did you know him? Did he know of you prior no. to that? No, he didn't. But Detective Scarcella was what they would call the closer. Oh. He's the guy who comes when nobody else can get a confession or nobody else can close a case, and he comes and miraculously he he has the confession okay. or he found the evidence or he found a witness that nobody else. Okay, he was that guy. Who, who built his reputation on closing cases that nobody else could close. You know what I'm saying? It took 20-something years later. I, I mean, now that I'm free, and it took me 27 and a half years that I was incarcerated before they finally reversed my conviction and let me out. Mm -hmm. But once I got out, and since I, uh, um, they started exp um, reviewing his cases, 15 cases have been overturned that, Scarcella did. Oh, wow. And there's still like 70 cases under review. But 15 wow. murder cases have been reversed based on the fact that he either fabricated evidence, fabricated witnesses, or straight up lied to incarcerate somebody. So the, the, his whole reputation as a closer, he was closing cases illegally. Yes. Right. right. He was creating evidence. How did you feel when you found out that your peoples got murdered? I was shocked, right? Um, I was shocked because I had just been with them the night before. Right. You know, part of me was saying, wow, had I still been there, I might have been, it might have been, you know, a victim. Right. You know, but, um, I, I was, I can't say I was surprised because this, like, like I said, this was the eighties and this was the crack era and people that were involved in that game, you know, this is when murder in in New York and in Brooklyn was at its height. Did you, you know, feel like anybody might have been after you? Or did you kind of feel like, well, it might have been luck of the circumstance if I was around, but, you know, you was just with them. Right. You know? I didn't think they were after me, per se. I think that they, it was just part of the game that they were in. It was just circumstantial. Right. And it was like... In that lifestyle, it was always some type of shootout or somebody trying to get somebody or, or rob this person. or So you had to live that knowing that at any time it could be you. Mm. you know? So um, you said that you were incarcerated for 27 years yes. and then it comes to light, quote unquote, that you did not murder your two friends. No, it didn't come to light. Well, not that it didn't come to light, but... <laughs> it took a they, lot of... They digging, <laughs> but see, so, but so, I guess my question is, they never found out who did it because for twenty seven years they thought that you did it. Well, they they had the funny thing is this: one month prior to these two guys being murdered, a previous attempt had been made on both of their lives. Okay, right. So somebody was after them for sure. Absolutely. So it wasn't as much circumstantial as. It seemed to be. Right. Now, at the time, I didn't know this. Nobody knew this. Right. It wasn't until. The, the, the situation was that one of the guys who I got murdered, like I said, the tent was made on both of their lives when they was at another location. And one of the guys who, had, who they had made the attempt on, he happened to have a, a machine gun on a, a Uzi. Mm -hmm. So when they came, he started shooting back. Mm. which is why they got away they, right. when he started shooting back. Police came while the shooting was going on, right? Mm. And because he had an Uzi and the guy that was trying to kill him had one too. So they was shooting back mm -hmm. and forth right. and it was like a, a, a lot of bullets, you know, mm -hmm. firing all over and people running and everything. Mm -hmm. Police came. He turned the weapon on the police officer mm. and um, everybody ran. He got caught. Okay. This is your man's or this is the, this is the person man's. that was trying? Okay. This is my man's. Okay. So now he got caught and he got bailed out for um for that case. Okay. So now when he was murdered in the case that I was arrested for, mm -hmm. he was due back in court two weeks later. When he didn't show up for court, they wanted to know why he didn't show up for court. Mm -hmm. And they contacted his family. Right. And his family said, well, he's dead. Right. And they was like, well, you can't just tell us that. You got to have some type of proof. You know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. anybody could say they yeah. dead okay, and not yeah. go to court. 
So they bought them the death certificate that had murder and it had me as the suspect in it. This is after I've been arrested and I've right. been sitting in jail for like two months, mm-hmm. right? The importance of that is that it all happened in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So the Brooklyn DA's office, when they when they had to settle that case, they knew from there that they had a previous beef and that somebody had just attempted to kill them 30 days prior to this. Right. So like when I'm getting ready to go to trial for a murder and all you need is reasonable doubt, this is reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. The fact that somebody just tried to kill them 30 days ago and they're still out there because they never got arrested. Right. Is, you know, potentially evidence that somebody else not only wants to, these guys there, but actually took concrete steps to make it happen. They actually tried to kill these people. So that's mm-hmm. something that I could have used at my trial to say, look, you know, you pointing the finger at me because of an argument, but these are guys I've known and we argue all the time. Mm-hmm. Look at this. Right. You know, I've never had no violence against them. This is actual proof of violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they didn't let you use that because you quote unquote confessed. No, they didn't even tell me about it. Oh, okay. They gotcha. hit it. Okay. I have a, I have a two part question. So one, how long was it um, from the time they confirmed that your man's was dead, and um, and the time that they came and got you? It was the uh, next day. It was the next day. So um, you mentioned that the the um, the prosecutor on the case right. was a closer. So the, the detective, the detective, right? So essentially, they call him when they need to close a case that they can't really crack. They called him the next day. They called like, him the same night. I got arrested. It wasn't even like they they tried to figure it out on their own. Like they just got him right away. They they came. I was in there. I was in the police precinct for like six to eight hours, wow. in which they were interrogating me, mm-hmm. and and I kept telling them the same thing. This is where I was. Here are the numbers of the people. They went and called the people and the people said, no, he was in Queens right here. And it's about 10 people in this household who can verify that. So it got to the point where his reputation is what allowed him to get into that space to to put you. Right. Because he you got to understand that. He wasn't even assigned to my case. That's what I'm that's what I'm kind of getting to. Like, why? Why was it him? He just happened, I believe, because it's what they say. They claim that he just happened to be in a precinct that day. And because he was known as a closer and they they went to him and said, look, we having a problem with this case. Like, this is the guy that was with him last night. This is the car that was found at the scene. We got witnesses that said that he was in an argument with them last night. We think this is the guy, but he he doesn't want to admit it. And he has alibi witnesses. So I mean, at that point, he he just felt that okay, well, I got it, yeah, you know, and just walked in there and decided to was make it a case. Was this your first time being arrested? No, it wasn't. Oh, okay, and that that was another reason because I guess what he did was he looked at my my Prior. history mm-hmm. yeah. and said, "No, this is the guy." And mm. but there was nothing like of violence in your jacket at all, right? Like was it? And my, yes, it was. Yeah, no, there was. Okay, yes. so. All right, um, I had a, another question. Um, so you, the detective, I don't know if this is a story that he put, like he fabricated or whatever, but they were saying there was a motive of like some type of money, like you owed money or somebody, yes. somebody in that situation was owed money. Yeah, he made wrong. up a story that um, they bought the car and that I owed them money for the car and that they had repossessed the car from me, right? Okay. Which didn't make sense because I had to sell the receipt. I had everything to show mm-hmm. that I bought this car. Mm-hmm. Right. They never bought the car. You know right. what I'm saying? But this was his explanation of why. Wow. You know? Um, and then he he encouraged the guy's brother to, uh, to testify against me. What? Because... The guy who got killed, his brother was there at the night before when me and his brother was arguing. Mm-hmm. Oh, so do you do you think that's how they know that there was an argument? Oh yeah, he told okay. him. The okay. brother told him. The, you know, um, but the brother's story became increasingly more 
incriminating as the months went on. Like when they first came to the scene and they seen it and said, who was here with them? And they was like, oh, it was them two. And it was um, Shy. And this is his car. That's mm. all the brother told him initially. Then they said, well, does Shy have an issue with him or something? They, yeah, well, they were arguing. Mm. Mm. Right? And then it became, oh, well, I know um, he may have done it. Or then it became... I saw him do it. What? Yes. Wow. Like, by the time I went to trial, this man testified at my trial that he was standing right there and I walked up behind his brother and shot his brother twice in the back and then ran. Wow. And he saw the whole thing. Right. The problem was the man was never shot in the back. Mm-hmm. So the whole the whole story went out the window because... We put the medical examiner, we had the autopsy reports, we had everything. Mm-hmm. And we and we asked him, when he said the story, my lawyer asked him, so you saw him walk up behind your brother and he said, your brother had his back to him? He said, yeah, my brother had his back to him and he shot my brother twice and my brother started running and he collapsed and he ran the other way. So we put the medical examiner up there and we said, well, you did a, you did the autopsy. What, what was the cause of death? And they said a gunshot wound. He said, okay, where right. was the gunshot wound to? He said, a gunshot wound to the chest that entered his chest and came out his back. Uh-huh. Right? And he said, how many shots? And he said, one shot. Now, he said twice in the back. Right. The medical examiner said once in the, in the mm-hmm. chest. So we asked the medical examiner, is it possible that somebody standing behind the person mm-hmm. could have caused that wound? Mm-hmm. And the medical examiner said, absolutely not. Whoever shot him was standing face to face with him. Oh, wow. So the guy's testimony was completely, you know, opposite of what the evidence, the hard evidence in the case. So what really convicted me was the testimony of the detective who said I confessed. Okay. Because there was no physical evidence. There was no no DNA. Like you see CSI, you see all that mm-hmm. stuff. They they had none of that. Mm-hmm. No physical, no, no fibers, no blood stains mm-hmm. on me, no, no gunpowder residue, nothing. They mm-hmm. was they even found a weapon and it didn't have my finger. It had fingerprints, but it weren't my fingerprints. You know what I'm saying? So there was nothing to connect me to this murder other than the testimony of the brother mm-hmm. who we were able to show, like, listen, this is not what he originally said. He changed his testimony like three or four times by the time he got to trial. Mm-hmm. And the testimony of the detective who said, I confessed. How long were you, how long were you in jail before the, before you went to prison? Before you actually like were transferred? Um, I was probably a year, a year and some months. While you were just waiting for trial? For trial, yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, how did you feel like throughout this whole process? Like one, were you confident that you were gonna beat the case or like, did it just feel like more and more was like getting piled on and you kind of was like, yo, this might not go my way? I always believed that I was gonna beat the case. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just couldn't phantom how I would be convicted. If you know you didn't do something, mm-hmm. it, like in your mind you're saying, they can't say I did something, I wasn't even there. Yeah. So in my mind, I kind of always knew I was going to beat the case. But every time I didn't uh, or I, I blew trial or appeal got shot down, I kept asking myself, like, how is this happening? Like, you know, like, are they not reading the the, the case? Like, this case makes no sense. Mm. But what I learned is that the criminal justice system doesn't work like that. You know, you're guilty until proven innocent. It's not the other way around. They tell you your innocence to prove guilty. That's not true. Once they accuse you, you got to prove you're innocent, right? It don't make a difference if the accusation makes no sense. The fact is, they said you did it, and you got to prove you didn't you do it. Fight that, right? Mm-hmm. So once you're convicted, it becomes even harder because in their mind, you went to trial, you had your shot, you lost. I don't have to review the evidence. I don't have to do none of this. They don't care, right? And by law, they don't have to care. The law doesn't say that when you when you go to trial um, in a criminal justice system, it's not whether you're guilty or innocent. That's not what 
the, the, the law cares about. The law cares if you had a fair trial. Mm-hmm. If you had a fair trial and it came out to the wrong decision, guess what? That's just your bad luck. You got to do that time. That's how the that's how the law works. That's crazy. So you were so. I guess can you tell us about like what your experience was like in the prison system? Well, <clears throat> I had two murder cases. Um, I had lost trial, so I had two life sentences running um, mm-hmm. consecutive. So basically, I had 20 to life. Mm-hmm. And when I finish that 20 to life, I have to start another 20 to life. Uh, How we, old were you? I was 21. Okay. So I had 40 years before the possibility of seeing a parole board and walking out, which everybody knows you hardly ever get out on your first parole board. So it was 40 years just to see a parole board. And with the nature of the crime, which was a double homicide, I probably would have did another five years in hits before I actually, you know. And that's just when, with, a good, with a good institutional record, mm-hmm. you probably would have did another five years. With a, a messed up institutional record, you're going to do at least 10, maybe 12 more years. Right? So... Because of the nature of the crime, I was never, I was always in maximum security prisons. I never was in a medium or a minimum. So it was always the worst prisons at the worst times. How many times did you get transferred? How many prisons did you? Altogether, probably about 15, Shit. Uh, 15, 16 times. I, to be honest with you, I stayed in trouble. Like, um, once I, like, you got to understand that I'm in jail for something I didn't do, mm-hmm. right? And I'm young. So mm-hmm. I don't understand the law really. I really didn't know the law at all. You know, I had faith that I was going to win just because I was innocent. Gotcha. Right? That didn't happen. Then I meet lawyers, and the lawyers is telling me, okay, do this, do this, do this, and we'll win on appeal. And then that doesn't happen. Right? So by this point, I'm fed up and I'm not cooperating with nothing. Like, you know, I don't care whatever happens. So a lot of times I was in, you know, in special housing or stuff like that because I just reacted to whatever little uh, um, problem came my way. But were that you, was were you, I'm fault. sorry. Were, yeah. were you were you like that naturally as a person? <clears throat> Not really. I've always been kind of reasonable, but it gets to a point where you kind of lose you lost the faith a little bit. Right. right. Dealing with the frustration. Right. Because it's one thing to know that you didn't do nothing, but to be able to voice it and have people not hear you mm-hmm. is frustrating. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then to realize that you're not skilled enough in law to do it for yourself. So you have to rely on somebody else to do it. And then realizing that they don't care either. Mm-hmm. Because most lawyers really don't care. Mm-hmm. Their job is... Okay, if I win, I win. If I don't win, I don't win. At the end of the day, I still go home, eat dinner, hang out with my family. That's his issue, not mine. Mm. You know what I'm saying? They still get paid either way. Mm. So it, that can't. That it's just frustration building on top of frustration, and then having to deal with the everyday. You think these police out here are bad mm. in prison, where there's no supervision and nobody to to, to stop them. They're even more abusive, right. you know. So it just builds and builds and builds, and and for like I could say the first 10, 12 years, I was just in trouble all the time. Like you know, locked up in solitary, in special housing, in keep lock. And it wasn't until I was doing like a real. I had always, even though from the beginning, I had always kind of like started working on my case. I didn't know, but I was like keeping, like every time somebody, I had a lawyer, I would always get the paperwork. Mm-hmm. I like, yo, let me get a copy of that. And I would keep it in my file. Even though I didn't know what I was going to do with it, mm-hmm. I just knew I should have it. 
in mm. case I need it in the future. So I would always get my paperwork. Yo, I need a copy of that. And whatever they did, I need that. I need that. You know, and I would co- keep copies of it. And I would read law cases. And I would go to the law library, even though I didn't understand what I was reading some of the times. Sometimes I did. And I would try to understand, how did this guy get out? And I didn't, you know? Mm. So over time, I started learning the law because I had always been aware that in the back of my mind that only way I was going to get out is if I did the work myself or something right. because I had no faith in in what was going on around me. So, but at the same time, I was getting in trouble and getting in trouble. I think the difference was that when I had like 12, 13 years in, a lot of the guys that I knew were going home. Mm. Because it's like, <clears throat> you know how you in high school, you're all in the same grade, mm-hmm. and then y'all keep going up, like y'all all Together. freshmen, now y'all, right, it's a little group of y'all. It's the same like when you get incarcerated. All y'all got arrested in this year, so y'all all kind of like know mm-hmm. each other because mm-hmm. y'all all on Rikers Island together, and then you go up, and then, you know, as time goes on. But these guys had five five years, 10 years, and they're going home. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's leaving and I'm still there. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to say, hold up. And it dawned on me, I might not never really go home. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and everybody else is. Mm-hmm. So I started saying, okay, this ain't going to work. I got to do something. Mm-hmm. you know. And I think at that point, I was doing <clears throat> three and a half years that I did in SHU. Right. I was doing for some inc- incidents that happened. I had like three and a half years that I did straight in solitary. Right. Wow. So I said, let me start learning the law. And I started just reading law books and reading law books and doing. And then when I, 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 I got out, I took a law class and I started, you know, learning more about the law. And I started working on my case even more. And I started really understanding what was going on and how I could beat this case. You know, how I could prove my innocence. And that led me to finding other guys who were also incarcerated behind the same officer. Okay. You know, and that kind of really opened my eyes that it wasn't me alone that was dealing with. It was a lot of us that had been framed by the same officer. He was white. Hmm. He was white. He's the, Italian. I'm gonna uh, assume by that last name you said. Oh yeah, yeah. He's a um, yeah, uh, Scarcella. He was a white Italian. Oh uh, okay. You know? So as I kept working in the law library and people would come and I'd read their cases and I said, "Oh wow, this is the same cop." Mm-hmm. I always kind of like kept it in the back of my head, right? Like this is the same cop, and I would write their name in their case and I would stash it with everything else that I had because. I didn't understand at the time, but I was building a case against him. Right. You know, and then I met uh, a friend of mine that that was incarcerated, which who was Derek Hamilton. And he was like a guy that was really well known in in the law. He was like one of the first people, actually the first guy, I got to give him credit. The first guy who told me early on in my bed, stop trusting these lawyers, learn the law yourself and do your own work. You're not going to get out of jail trusting them, right? So, and he kind of like put that spark on me early and and started me learning a little bit. So this is like 20 years later, I Mm -hmm. I bump heads with him again. Mm -hmm. But now I'm really good at the law. I I know it and I've been working on it. And me and him are talking and I show him my, um, the motion that I have been working on. And he said, you got a a, a Scarcella case? I said, yeah. He said, me too. Mm. Oh, I didn't wow. even know that. Wow. Like it blew my mind that he had a Scott Seller case. Right. So I said, yo, we gotta get this guy. Mm. Yeah. I said, we gotta get this guy. I got mad cases. I could show that. Look at all the stuff he did in these people's cases. So we started working together to kind of put something together to expose him. Okay. And then he got paroled. You know, he had did 20 years and he had got paroled. And uh, he did like 22 and he got paroled. Mm-hmm. So I told him, I said, look, we still got to work on this. You know, you're going home, keep in touch with me. You know, let's work on this. 
at the time we had been working on getting people together, doing rallies at City Hall, writing to different people. We was trying to build some type of momentum behind this guy being a crooked cop. And lo and behold, <laughs> he goes home. I'm still incarcerated. And bang, the New York Times does a big article about David Ranta, a white guy who just got a reversal and his conviction overturned because Detective Louis Garcella fabricated mm. a confession against him. Mm. Wow. So I read this and I'm like, this is it. Mm -hmm. Like we finally, one person mm -hmm. was able to prove that this guy, you know, and of course it was a white person. So, you know, they, <laughs> they gave, they cared a little bit more. Right. But I sat there and said, this is it. This is going to open the door. So I, I, I calls Derek and I tell him, fine, you know, let, listen, we got to talk to these people, the, um, the reporters. And it just so happened that he was talking to the reporter because of another case that, that he had been involved in. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to the reporter about that case. And he told her, he said, you got to read um, my partner's case. And I had wrote a whole motion in which I had explained that this guy was a crooked cop. And right. I had gave a lot of examples of different cases. Right. So she read it. The New York Times reporter read it and said, this can't be true. You know? So... Like, cause it was just crazy that right. this would have happened and nobody would have noticed it. Right. So I wonder for how many years? For almost 30 years that he had been an officer. He had been falsely imprisoning wow. people. Okay. What, what year did you what year did you originally go to prison? 1988. And then um in 2014, you tried to kind of is this when you tried to bring forward your motion to to have an appeal or in 20... Tried to have the case reopened. In 2012. I know I had been trying my whole bit. Okay. But okay. 2012 was when David Ranta was released. Okay. And I had pushed my motion. And my motion was in court already at the time that David Ranta had been released. Mm. So the reporter said, I got to talk to him. So she told my friend, I got to talk to, to um, Shabaka. So Derek said, yo, call her. So I called her. And she said, I read the motion. She said, it's just incredible that you have all this information and nobody else knows. Right. You know, how did you get this information? I said, I've been, I've been studying this guy for years. Right. And she said, but how does it that nobody knows that this is going on? I said, listen, you don't have to believe me. Right. Mm. You're an investigative reporter. I'm giving you all the information. Do what you do. Investigate. I'm right. giving you the names. I'm giving you the cases. I'm giving you the locations. I'm giving you everything you need. Mm -hmm. Go investigate. Prove me wrong. And they, 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 they still came to the conclusion that you were guilty. Well, she, the, the reporter went and found out. And, and once she verified everything I said, she wrote a whole big article in the New York Times. And that snowballed into the New York Times, the Daily News, the... Um, the channel um, 11, channel seven, everybody took on, started in looking at this through cases and more and more people started popping up saying he did it to me, he did it to me. Okay. So it kind of snowballed, right? So now a couple of things were in my favor. My motion was already submitted before David Ranta was released, um, was exonerated. Mm. So I wasn't jumping on a bandwagon after the fact. Mm -hmm. All right. I had no, I had no idea that this guy was going to get out of jail, and I had already said this guy was crooked, and he fabricated a confession before y'all found out that this guy did it in this case. Right. Right. So that came that gave me a little bit of credibility because the judge said he's not saying it after the fact. He made this accusation before this years mm -hmm. before. You know what I'm saying? And then I had also made the accusation. 20 years prior to that, when they went and looked at my record, I said, look, right. I said he, he fabricated a confession 20 some years ago. Right. So it kind of lent credibility that I had made this, this, I had did this before. So what the judge did was he ordered an investigation. He reopened the case and he ordered the district attorney in Brooklyn to reinvestigate my case. Cause he said, I'm not going to let this go. I need an investigation. I need to find out what's going on in this case. Right. So that was the first real big step that said, 
okay, I might get a shot here, mm-hmm. right? But by then, I had totally lost faith in the system. So when the judge said that, I said, nah, I, I don't want no investigation. I don't want the DA to do no investigation. If we're going to do an investigation, let's hold a hearing in open court. Mm-hmm. I don't want no behind the scenes type stuff going mm-hmm. on. I want it recorded in mm-hmm. open court so that everybody knows what's going on. Cause y'all not going to pull no real slick moves behind closed doors. Yeah. Right. You know, like I've been grabbing this information for the last 20 years. I'm giving you the evidence. I know I'm going to, you know, prove mm-hmm. my innocence and you're not going to try to close the door on me behind the, you know, the curtains and nobody mm-hmm. knows what happened. I said, I want mine's in open court. Mm-hmm. So I went and got a lawyer because by then my case had been in the newspapers. You know, yeah. my name was coming out now. So all the lawyers was contacting me. Yo, let me represent you. Let me represent you, which is mm-hmm. crazy because I couldn't get nobody to represent <laughs> me right. a few years ago. But now everybody wanted to represent me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's because you did all the work for them. Right. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it seemed at that point like a short thing like that they would thing. win. Yeah. Right. So then I, I ended up getting um, Ronald Kuby, who is a very famous New York City civil rights lawyer. Okay. He's the guy, he's a criminal and civil rights lawyer, but he's the guy who takes all the cases that, you know, like the Black Panther cases and all these cases. He's like mm-hmm. one of those guys who takes all these rebels. So I knew that he wouldn't be afraid to fight for me. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, out of all the lawyers, I said, I want you to do it. He said, okay. Um, so he said, give them some time to investigate. Let them let them do their investigation. Because I, like I said, I didn't want no investigation. I wanted... Let's go to trial. Let's go to, to the hearing. Right. He said, give them an invest, give them time to do the investigation. I gave them like a year mm-hmm. that they investigated. They went and got papers. They did all these investigations. Okay. At the end of the year, I started getting antsy. I was like, Lo, I, I want to I hear it. What if my witnesses die? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What right. if something happens, you know, while I'm waiting for them to keep investigating? I want to I wanna have my hearing. Right. So he went to them and said, listen, he wants his hearing. And they was like, we're not done investigating. Tell him to wait. Right. So I went to the judge and said, nah, I want my hearing. <laughs> I'm not waiting no more. <laughs> then I had a year, that's enough. Yeah. And because I did that, that's when they came back and said, well, we think he did it. Uh, you see what I'm saying? So they concluded their hearing, I mean, their investigation with the fact of saying, yeah, well, we think he did it. And that was around 2013, that was around 2014. 20, 2013, 2014. Okay. And I was like, I'm cool. I'm right. cool with that. That's your, that's your uh, conclusion. No problem. Right. Can I have my hearing I right now? I still want to hear it, right. <laughs> and then the judge said, absolutely. And, and then I went to hear it and I beat them in the hearing. How, how long was that? The hearing was like six months. Sheesh. And then it was another six months waiting for the judge to make his decision. What? Yeah. So between how do you do? How does that happen? The system takes. You know, I mean, they they take their sweet ass time when it comes to things. Yeah. What year were you released? Twenty fifteen, June of twenty fifteen. So it took three years, pretty much, from the moment you came forward in twenty twelve. Yeah. Um. So I know the detective retired. You know, and and all that. But did he ever get into any kind of trouble or anything? No. Well, the the criminal justice system said that because he had retired eight years prior to any of this happening, that the statute of limitation, which is six years on any crime that he would have committed, had already passed. That's crazy. That's trash. So there's nothing. Wow. So literally nothing happened to him. No. He's still... Collects a pension from the New York uh, um, Police Department. They last year they um they awarded him one of the top detectives awards for for closing more cases than so you know. Even with all that bullshit happening, he was still that's right. crazy. Um, that's not surprising. They protect their own, of course. About how many guys have been exonerated? You know, because of him. Um, fifteen so far. 
15. They're still looking at a lot more cases. Yeah. But you, at the beginning, you said like, what is it, seven? Did you say 70? 70 cases that they're looking at. Okay. There's still 70 cases, 70 cases under investigation. He committed, he, he, he was responsible for 300, over 300 murder arrests. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 70 of them have been reopened for reinvestigation okay. based on they saying, okay, these is funny. Right. 15 of them have already been um, reversed and overturned mm-hmm. and the people released. The, you got to understand that though, when they reinvestigate, they really don't want to let you go. They're looking for any way that they can kind of like confirm the conviction and say, oh, no, no, he was good on this one. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. They're not trying to, 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 to let you go. But there's a possibility that there's many other people that can be released like I think going a, forward. I think there's a probability that quite a few more people will be released going forward. Because you got to understand, it, it's not just him. Mm. All right. You, you, you look at it and say, okay, he 15 times they have found something to reverse a person, right? But he's not by himself. He has a partner, mm. right? So what about the cases that his partner did? Mm-hmm. Because you can't be doing all this illegal stuff and your partner don't know. Right. You know, he got to be in on it too. Right. So now we're looking at the cases under your name, but what about the cases that are under his name and your name is not on it, but his name is on it? Right. Because now he was the lead detective, so now it's under his name. But that don't mean you wasn't there. You was partner. You was there too. Right. <laughs> So you might have did something illegal, but we wouldn't be able to look at it because it's not under your name. It's under his name. So mm-hmm. are, are all 70 of these cases directly tied to him or are some of them tied Those to are just his? Directly tied to him. So has the criminal justice system cared enough to look into his partner? Or is that not something that they- They're gonna- just now starting to do that because people are arguing that it's not just him. Mm-hmm. Right. Like these two have been partners for 30 years. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, there's no way that his partner did not know and was not involved right. in these cases. But he wasn't involved in yours. Was no, he, he was someone, involved in He was case. involved in yours yeah. as well? He was one of the detectives that were involved in my case. Wow. Yeah. The partner. The partner. Okay. He wasn't the one who fabricated he wasn't, the confession right, 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 in my right, right. case. Right. But he was his name is is involved in my case. I'm also. assuming he's retired also. Yes, he's retired. How um it sounds like you're keeping up with all of this. Like how, like I guess, with the information and what they're doing, I guess, how do you, how do you, how do you keep up with it? Well, um, we kind of like have a group. You know what I'm saying? Because most of us who have Scarcella cases, we kind of communicate. We see each other all the time, okay. and we support other people who have similar cases. Okay. Like if somebody come and say, "Oh, he did it to me," mm-hmm. and and. They're in jail right now. And they write me, yo, he did it in my, in my case too. Mm-hmm. I take that letter and I go back and I and I talk to guys. I say, yo, look, it's another case. And we try to bring it to lawyers. Like we we know he's a crooked cop. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt if you mm-hmm. write me and say that he did it to you because right. I know he did it to me. Right. I'm not going to be one of them people that ignore that because that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I sat in jail for 20 some years because I've been saying he was crooked mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to believe it. So if somebody tells me he's crooked, I said, yeah, I know that. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> let me see. Let me go talk with what he called. Let me see what we can do. Okay. Sometimes we can help people. Sometimes we don't, but we let them know that, you know, we're not ignoring it. Yeah. You know, we, we, we paying attention. So it kind of keeps us in the loop when somebody like, um, De Leon just got out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was like two, three weeks ago. He was a scar seller case. Wow. Um, he just got out like two or three weeks ago. We were all in the courtroom for him. Okay. You know, at least six or seven guys that were scar seller exonerees were in that courtroom. Okay. You know, so. because we want people to know that we're not going to let it die down. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Every time his name is mentioned in something, we're going to be there. Mm-hmm. To cheer them people on and say, no, he's a crooked cop. You're not going to sit here and change the narrative now. Right. We're not going to let that happen. I remember when we had interviewed you the first time, you had said something about when you got out, you were doing something to help people who were locked up. I wish I could remember. Yeah, we was, um, at that time, when I first got out, I was working, 
I was working at the law office because I, okay, I, I yes. actually was working with um with Kubi, Ron Kubi, who was the lawyer who helped me get out. Mm-hmm. So I started working in the law office as a paralegal for him. Okay. Uh, and we was involved in, in, in at least three cases that we dealt with with Kubi were Scott Seller cases and they have now gotten out. Oh, that's true. You know, so, um, you know. Now that, you're too busy to be a paralegal. Yeah. like <laughs> You know what? And to be honest with you, the law was never something that I wanted to do. I did it by necessity. Like, okay. I, I, it got to the point where I couldn't trust no lawyers. I had to do it myself. But, it, you know, law is something that you got to really love doing it mm-hmm. or it just it, it weighs on your brain. It's like, you know, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since you've um, you've been home since 2015, I guess... I don't want to say like what have you done to turn your life around, but obviously like this is like from being locked up for 20 something years and now you're doing like all these big things like with uh, Rebirth Media and like putting on events and stuff like that. Like firstly, how did you get the motivation to do all of that and like the inspiration? 27 years of daydreaming. Like I was in Mm -hmm. the cell wanting to do things and you know you cut off from society mm-hmm. so you I'm reading magazines and looking at TV and and wondering what I would have done had I been out there so you know I came home with the thirst for wanting to do things I didn't mm-hmm. want to just I've been sitting in the cell for 20 something years I didn't want to sit on the couch okay you know so I wanted to get involved in, in stuff and I learned you know some good stuff some bad stuff you know I've had a lot of knockdowns, you know what I'm saying? Because you don't come home prepared. You know, like if you've been waste if you've been wasting away in prison for 20 something years, you come home, technology is so far advanced that mm-hmm. it took me a while to even catch up with that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and not just like cell phones, but just simple things of how to do things. Mm-hmm. Because I just recently somebody told me you're still thinking like you're in the 1980s, you know? Really? Yeah, because even when when I'm doing something, let's say I have an assignment or a project that I'm trying to do, mm-hmm. right? My first thought is, okay, let me go get this book. Let me study this. Let me write this. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you ain't got to do that now. You just Google it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? But okay. the thought pattern of, of how I'm used to working, mm-hmm. even from when I was you know, trying to get out of jail is let me go get this law book. Let me study this. Let me study that. Okay. People work like this now because they just Google it, get the answer, you know. Mm, type it up. Type it up. And that's that. Mm-hmm. So what. Right. Heck yeah. Research is gone because yeah. the research is already done for you mm-hmm. on Google or on, on one of these apps. You know, so everything that I, I used to want, I mean, I used to, the process that we used to do, because mm-hmm. we don't have that in the prison system. You're still doing it the old way. You still okay. have to go get books. You still have to go research. Mm-hmm. People now do that, something that might have took a couple of hours in 10 mm-hmm. minutes, 15 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. So it takes time to really transition from that way of thinking into understanding that you know, we live in an information age where you don't have to do all that no more, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's the that's one of the detriments of being locked up for a long time. You out of time, you out of sync with what's going on and mm-hmm. it takes time to catch up, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'm out of sync with a lot of stuff, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. What was the first thing you did when you came home? Do you remember? The first day? Like the first thing you did. The f- like first major thing I did was yeah. I went I went down to Florida uh to visit my father. Because okay. uh my mother passed away while I was in prison. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh me and her were very close and she passed away in twenty eleven. Mm-hmm. So basically like four mm-hmm. years before I got a chance to come home. So she never really even got a chance to see me come home. Which right. which bothered me a mm-hmm. lot, mm-hmm. and then my father, um, when I came home, was dealing with dementia. Uh. so and he was being cared for by my brother who lives in Florida. So I went down there to go see him, and that was kind of like heartbreaking because he didn't even recognize who I was. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He kept thinking that I was my younger brother. Oh, okay. You know, and I said, nah, it's me. He's like, when you got out, you know? Mm-hmm. And then a few hours later, he'd see me and think it's my younger brother again. And I say, and he'd ask me the same thing, when you got out? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, so it kind of really bothered me that my mother never got to see me come home. Mm-hmm. And my father, even though he saw me, he never got to really no. know mm-hmm. that I was home. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So both of them, and he passed a year after I was home. Mm-hmm. Uh. So that was the first major thing that I did was to go home and see him, to go mm-hmm. down to Florida to see him and see all my family. I had nieces and nephews who were grown. Mm-hmm. like, And they had never seen me. They had heard of me. Right. You know, they all Uncle Shadis, but they never actually saw me face to face, you know. So I went down there and, you know, spent a lot of time with family. I think that was the first major thing that I did. That's cool. Um, You guys have anything else? I was just going to say or ask. So now I guess, can you like tell the list? Go ahead. Oh, oh go, ahead, go ahead. You already started. I just I guess, remember one. Like, let the listeners know, like, some of the like cool things that you get into now. Um, now I'm doing a, a number of things. I have a company called Rebirth Multimedia Group, which does entertainment. We do events. We work with artists. We've done a number of shows, and we do showcases now. So. That's something that I've been building up and 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 I think that this year here is really gonna you're gonna see a lot of more of us because we're we're actually even trying to get into the film and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanna make sure that we're doing everything in the entertainment um mm-hmm. field. And I've built a, a very um well experienced, I mean, I got an awesome team. And I know that this year is gonna really be our breakout year. And I've been doing that for like two years now, but this year is really going to be our breakout year on that. Right. I also uh, work with a corporate strategist whose name is uh, Nicole Hardy. She's like a a top corporate strategist. Mm -hmm. And me and her got together and created a company called 1925 Consulting, right? Which is, it helps startups take, you know, um, develop and scale up into corporations, but, and, and, and I'm not talking about small mom and pop startups. We actually work with a lot of big, um, startups, mm-hmm. you know, startups that usually take like a million dollars to start and stuff like that. Um, we're dealing with tech, a tech, um, startup called digital air. And remember, I'm telling you this mm-hmm. in the next year or two, mm-hmm. they're going to knock Google and everybody else out of the box. They, they're the next thing to come out, you know, and and it's big. You know, they've already partnered with IBM, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, they've been working with a couple of colleges like um, um, Morgan State and Atlanta Clark, uh, Clark Atlanta. They, they've been working with um, Harvard and Yale. Like, they are the next big thing. You know, that's one. Um I also, we're now working with cannabis. That's how, mm-hmm. that's the new thing that we're getting into right now. So we've been going out to the West Coast and working with a lot of cannabis companies. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a big deal getting ready to come together within the next month or so, which will probably put us at the head of a, of a major uh, cannabis company. Right. You know, so... And those are all opportunities that I've been able to get into. Mm-hmm. And it's important to me because I want to show that even though I spent 20 something years, you know, like you can come out and really get into these things because a lot of guys come home and and, and when they get involved in this construction or, you know, some type of, manual labor job or something like that, but you got to be able to think outside the box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they and they don't do it because they say, oh, well, I don't have the degrees. I don't have this. I don't have that. What you have to have is the experience, not the experience, the, 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 the know-how, mm-hmm. right? Because it's funny, like some of the people that I've met that really have these positions don't even have degrees in this. Mm-hmm. They didn't go to school for this. 
Mm-hmm. They just know what they're doing. You know, and if you know what you're doing, you could be successful in it. You don't need the degrees. A lot of guys, when I was in prison, I met guys who literally can do anything. Like they take radios apart and make tattoo guns or, you know, or create stuff. Mm-hmm. So they mentally they're capable of doing a lot of things, mm-hmm. but they don't see that. They don't they don't envision the 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 how how far it can go. So when they come home, they go get a construction job or they go work in McDonald's or some, mm-hmm. you know, menial job. And, you know, you just can't exist in, in New York State working those type of jobs. You know, you, you, you're breaking your back and you're not even making the money that's going to cause you to live happily. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, they back in jail because yeah, they got man, tired. Dumb shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, last thing I have... Um, and again, it's not to be in your pocket. I know you were awarded something when you came home. Mm-hmm. Was that worth all the time that you spent? Not, a, not at all. Um, not at all. Uh, <laughs> here's the funny thing, right? I, I Out of that money, I, I bought a couple of things to safeguard myself, like a house and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. just because you need a roof over your head. And mm-hmm. I always knew that, okay, if anything else, if everything else happens, at least I got a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but I lost a lot of money in business ventures mm-hmm. because like I said, you're not prepared when you come out. Yeah. Right? And um, you get involved. You know what you want to do, but you don't realize the um, the cost of doing it. Because everybody, even when, you know, I, I had a restaurant, for example, and everybody thinks, okay, you you cook up food, you sell it, mm-hmm. you make money. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a thousand other things that you have to consider and everything costs. Mm-hmm. And a thousand different agencies and that are going to be in your pocket, like insurances and health board and this mm-hmm. and that. Before you know it. You're paying out so much that you it's hard. That's why they say the restaurant business is one of the hardest businesses to um to prosper in. Because it's so much that you have to consider that you don't even realize, right? So a lot of money I lost, right? Mm-hmm. Now that I actually have a better grasp on how business should be done, because I'm working with people who actually had to took the time to really show me this is how you do business. Mm-hmm. I'm making more money now or I'm potentially will make more money now than the money they gave me. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So technically had I been out here and had this information, I think I would have made more money than what they gave me. And the money is never going to make up for 27 years of your life. That's been taken. Like I said, my mother, and my father, I never even got a chance for them to acknowledge the fact that I'm home. And I've never had a chance to see my some of my nephews, some of my family, they grew while I was in prison and died while I was in prison. You know what I'm saying? And I never got a chance to even spend time with them. They can never give you that back. So when they say that they give you money, because it's a funny thing that the DA said that at my hearing one time. Mm-hmm. He said, you, you're doing this because you know you're going to sue us and get money. What? Yeah, that's what he said, right? And I looked at him like, are you serious? I purposely went to jail for almost three decades to get some money out of you? Right. (laughs) You know how stupid that sounds? Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, but that's the picture that they want to paint to try to discredit you. The fact is, no money you gave me can make up for my time. You know what I'm saying? Because you, time is something you can never get back. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, brother. That was so good. Right. Your story, I think, is one that, like, really um, is an example of, like, perseverance, strength. And I think some of the things you're doing, almost all the things that you're doing now that you've come home are, are you know, things that uplift the community. Yeah, trying to help the people that were in the positions that you were in. And um, I think it's really admirable. So, let me, let me go let ahead. Me let me say that I also, we also have... Uh, community center in Brownsville called Day Two Multipurpose Center that we deal with reentry. That's something that we put together because we wanted to help brothers when they first come home try to 
transition better. And and having gone through it, I think that I have a better grasp on what they need to learn coming home rather than what, you know, the tech books or, you know, Mm -hmm. textbooks tell you, okay, this is what they need. Right. You know, so. When do you sleep? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was it was an honor to have you on the show we appreciate you coming through and, and like I said your story is definitely one that needs to be heard and we're glad that we could we could tell it we could we could let you you know use our platform to tell it and um are you do you have a book are you writing a book or is anything in the works for that because I think it's a lot um that could go on some pages I was supposed to be involved in something like that um I mean we went to do like a documentary series mm. and then that just went bananas because it was just so much politics in the whole um, Hollywood thing. We went to Hollywood, sat down with a bunch of different people, but it was just so much politics. Mm-hmm. And then that didn't go well. And, you know, so it may happen still, but I think if it happens, it's going to be something that's self-produced. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you know? I, I want to tell the story. I don't want to, I don't want to cover it up. Right. You know? Well, God Especially bless you, brother. they have so many people who were... Uh, convicted by the same, same guy. That's ridiculous. That's but crazy. yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, for having time, me. Thank you for checking out this week's episode. Survivor Series is created by Cherry Poppins, recorded and engineered by J Omega, and me, I was just here. The Survivor Series is a production of the Officially Street Podcast. 